We are going live as this thing loads up. I just want to just let you guys know I'm so happy that you are here. It's going to start appearing on our various pages. So uh, I start appearing on my page. So start refreshing my page, please, and uh, sharing it. Guys, I just want to welcome you to an awesome live show today on Labor Day. This is going to be amazing. You guys who have been tracking with me on my page have seen that I have been taking on suicide full frontal, and it has nothing to do with our lack of love for people. As a matter of fact, it has to do with our love for people. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they triumph over him, talking about the devil. They overcame him, some translations said, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives even unto death, which meant they were willing not only to live for Jesus, but to die for Jesus. Yesterday, by God's grace, I preached a message on suicide and how it's a sin, but Jesus came to set us free from this sin. And in both services, before I even preached, so there would be no manipulation, no twisting of the arms, I just asked people in our congregation to stand up if they have been set free from anxiety, depression, or suicidal thoughts. There was roughly about 17 in the first service, and there was over 25 in the second service for over 40-plus people set free from these kinds of things, including me. My personal testimony, and those who are here are part of our church, can tell you my personal testimony always starts off with saying, I wanted to go to a mental hospital. I called up my mother. I was desperate, and Jesus set me free. And so without any further ado, I'm going to introduce our guests to you and let them start testifying. I have with me Monique Pittman. She's going to be testifying. Desiree Merced and Jerry Vivit, each one of them, I can tell you this is not even a fly-by-night. This is not an over-emotional thing. This is not just, oh, I've tried Jesus for a little bit, and now this is something that I want to talk about. No, they are like me. They have tried and true testimonies. My testimony is over 20 years old, some of them here upwards of a decade year old. And so let's start, before I get her on, let's show you some before pictures of who she was. This is Monique's pictures before she gave her heart to Jesus. She was a Columbia student, so she was into photography here in Chicago, and she was asked to take some pictures to describe her life, kind of do like a photo biography of her life. And these were the pictures that she chose. She chose to show the anguish of her soul. She was a cutter, a mutilator, fixated with blood. She's gonna tell her testimony right now, but I wanna ask you a question. Just as we get started, are we going to now, just as I can already hear some people that are being sassy, are we going to now start to say they were not as suicidal as I was or they were not as depressed as I was? My friend, the very fact that you or anyone would think right at the beginning of this, these testimonies do not relate to me because they do not fit all of these things. My friends, that's already a sign of pride. So if you're here right now dealing with depression, dealing with something that is really bothering you mentally, and the first thing you want to start saying as you hear testimonies is, these people are nothing like me. I want to tell you that is pride because all of us are, who are here can relate to despair, can relate to coming to our end. And my friend, how many of us here needed to die 
to literally come back to life and then tell you we were wanting to die before people will believe it. And Jesus even said, if people die and come back to life, they won't believe it if they don't believe the scriptures. So hear us today. We could have died and been in the same situation as many of you are here today. But let's go to Monique. Monique, how are you doing? Tell us what is up. Uh, not much. I'm, I'm having a great day. I'm having a great life, honestly. I'm, I'm really blessed. And that's really interesting that you asked me to do this talk because this is something that's been on my mind for a while now as I started to put up my blog again. So this is definitely confirmation that people need to hear about this. Amen. Yeah. So this will be on podcast as well. So tell people where they can find you on your blog. So my website is eatthegood.com eatthegood.com. Awesome. So what we were talking about before the show started that gave me some background information, because obviously even as I, as a pastor, don't know it all. I didn't know that this started for you, uh, thoughts of suicide at 11. Will you take us to being an 11-year-old with thoughts of suicide? I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Sure. So uh, yeah, I definitely started dealing with depression and suicidal thoughts around age 11. And I think a lot of it had to do with my upbringing and feeling really alone, you know, uh, feeling really stifled. I wasn't really allowed to go out or uh, have friends or anything. And so, and even when I was in school, I was bullied a lot. So I, I definitely felt alone and like, I didn't matter. My family was like very verbally abusive to me. So I just felt like it would be better if I wasn't there. And so um, it definitely progressed worse and worse. And I was asking my family to get me some help, like some therapy, some counseling, you know, some medication, and they, they constantly refused. And they said it was just in my head, you know, it wasn't that serious. And then in my teens, I started cutting, I started self mutilating. And um, I started seeking out like a, a scene or a type of people group that would kind of relate to me. So I got really into the goth stuff and the punk stuff. And I started listening to really, really depressing suicidal music that kind of uh, validated how I felt. And it, it, I thought that it was good for me. I thought that it was helping me, but it really just sent me deeper and deeper in to the depression. And so I, uh, you know, I kind of uh, mentally just really, really spiraled downward. And I started, I planned a couple of suicide attempts and I came really close to curing them out. But at the last minute, I kind of backed out and chickened out because I didn't want to feel pain as I was dying. So I just, you know, I just stopped altogether. And, and because of, feeling lonely and things like that, I almost turned to like homosexuality. Like I came really close to that too. Um, and it was always with people that were just as depressed as me. And uh, so, yeah, I just carried on, carried on through my teens. And even all the way until I was a young adult, when I entered college, I started making those suicidal photos to kind of, I guess it was a cry for help, but I didn't really feel like anyone would help me. So it was really like a, just an emotional relief for me to kind of put it out there. Like, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm feeling. And I pretty much wanted to die every day of my life. I cried myself to sleep probably every day for years. So that's, that's what it was like for me all the way up until I got saved at 19. Wow. Wow. I just want to hit on some of these things. Um, sometimes people hear what we're saying and in their own twisted mind, contrive it to mean that we are against the person having suicidal thoughts Right. Nothing could be further from the truth. We love them so much. We're telling them about the dangers of hell to warn them. Jesus says it would be better to cut off your hands and your legs, your eyes, 
and go to heaven missing those body parts than to go to hell. I mean, that's how serious it is. And he told us that because he loved us. When I hear this about being 11 years old and them not helping you, that breaks my heart because that would be the exact opposite of what we would teach in our church or what we would tell our parents. We would never tell them to tell tell the parents to tell their children, it's just in your head, you know, just get over it. We would never take it that lightly. We would really want to come alongside of them using the best of medicine, the best of counseling, the best of Christian therapy as well. Um, Tell us just a little bit about the trauma of growing up because 11-year-olds normally don't face that. Do you think this had to do with uh, having lost your mom at an early age, not really having a a close relationship with your father and being raised pretty much by a grandmother that was culturally distinct from you, from another country, Poland and all that. Do you think that kind of made an 11-year-old's life kind of a living hell? Yeah, definitely. I do think so. I lost my mom when I was 16, but prior to that, our relationship was really bad. And she was very, uh, she was really promiscuous. She was always dating somebody new, um, always had another guy like every couple of weeks. And she was really distant from me and my grandmother. And my grandmother really took on the majority of the work raising me. And I know she tried her best. She really tried to do what she thought was right. But because she didn't really understand a relationship with Christ at that time either and how it can transform you. She was very like, uh, you know, suppressing me, didn't want me to go outside. And even though she was trying to protect me from my mom, she was just as verbally abusive to me. And my mom was kind of physically abusive too. So those two things have combined them not letting me go out and have friends. Um, and my mom just, you know, uh, she got drunk a lot and went out to the clubs and the bars and came home all wasted and crazy looking and, you know, uh, doing those kinds of things, that was really difficult for me. So I felt like I didn't have a closeness with any of my family. My dad was not really present in my life, um, you know, like that, even though I saw him a couple of times a year. So that was definitely absent. I didn't have a dad figure in my life at all until I got saved. So there was all of those things, definitely the the family dysfunction, um, feeling alone at school. And then I was very heavily bullied in school from a very early age from kindergarten, I was bullied. I mean, it was bad. Pause right there. Thank you for correcting me. Anytime guys, I'm interviewing you, please correct me. And by the way, we've got live people joining us on the feed. Thank you guys so much for encouraging those who are sharing Cassie, Elaine, Thomas, and others. Yeah. So correcting me, it wasn't you lost your mother at the beginning. It was just an unstable family and that with the bullying and not getting help by the time your mother does pass and it's, going downhill. It's going downhill from there. It only gets worse, right? Then going back to the bullying, once again, here we are as Christians, and people think we deny the risk factors that we, because we believe that gay and lesbian lifestyles is sin, that somehow we approve of bullying, because we uh, believe that truth should be told we believe in bullying. Absolutely not. No one should ever be bullied. And even when we're preaching the truth, people should know it in love. And so that's never, never, never something we approve of. But how were you getting bullied at 11? What was the reason that they were picking on you so much? Was it your weight? Because I know you have told me before you struggled with weight. Was it you were socially awkward? Just what made you a target for the kids you were around? It was all of those. I was overweight. Um, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't, uh, my family didn't really like take care of me very well in terms of appearance aside from weight. Like I had really 
bogus looking hair and my clothes didn't fit me correctly. So, and I had to wear a uniform in school, so it just didn't fit me right. So I was made fun of for my weight, my overall appearance, my social awkwardness, um, just all, yeah, definitely all those things. People just thought I was weird. They didn't really want to be my friend. I, I only had like one or two friends, like close friends during the time I was in grammar school. Wonderful for being honest. Thank you. If you're being bullied now, get help from an adult. If you don't know a good adult, we're here right now. We'll be your advocates. Everybody who knows me knows that I stand up for those who get bullied. When I used to work in the inner city, those who are some of you are watching even right now, Shalita, you know that I always protected those who are getting bullied or mistreated. That, that is the Christian thing to do, even if we disagree about lifestyle or choices, because sometimes people want to blame us for the reason why children are committing suicide as transgender, gay, and lesbian. No, when we teach the truth, we do it in a way that lets them know we love them and we never promote it. Just want to really say that clearly. So if you're being bullied, we're here to help. Uh, Monique, when it came to being 19 years old, Jesus entered your life. Was it anything short of a miracle? How would you describe what God literally did in your life? And as you tell that story, I'm just going to put back up the pictures just for a few moments. Sure. Um, so when I first, uh, when I first, uh, when I gave my life to the Lord at 19, um, and I moved away from my grandmother and I committed to going to church, because she wouldn't even let me go to church prior to that. So I literally had to move because I wanted to go to church. So I moved in with, uh, with uh, Vanessa, you know, my best friend at the time, uh, who, you know, part of MPI and I moved in with her family and probably the, the first service I ever went to uh, I was also dealing with panic attacks and anxiety like very frequently almost on a daily basis for like a year prior to coming as soon as people prayed for me that day when I came to church I stopped having anxiety attacks. so that that was like an instantaneous thing for one and then after that um, after understanding that you're a new creation and learning all of those scriptures about how like the old is gone, you know, your, your mind is to be renewed and being mentored by people who I saw legitimately cared about me. It like changed my perspective of humanity. It made me realize that like God must be real and he is existing and working through people because I'm actually feeling loved. And so because I could feel how much God loved me, he answered my prayer of, you know, removing me from my grandmother's house, allowing me to be free and uh, go to church because he answered those prayers and I felt him speaking to me and I felt that he loved me. It became, uh, it became easier to uh, overcome the suicidal thoughts. Like the, the thoughts of dying happened. Uh, those thoughts were pretty much taken away pretty quickly after I got saved. I still wrestled with depression on and off in the beginning. Um, but there did come a time where that, that feeling completely broke off as well. And it was just as I got a deeper relationship with God, as I understood more of him and understood more of his will for my life, the feelings of just feeling sad all the time and hopeless just started to go away without really me having to work super, super hard to make it happen. Wow. So we're looking at a miracle. God comes into your life and things instantly begin to change. And then a process starts and other things begin to change. This is powerful. This is very powerful. I think people need to get this. We are not saying that science and mental health work is not real. We actually support it. We're not conspiracy theorists. But what we believe is that God can do 
what doctors cannot do. We believe in putting on glasses because our eyes don't work. And we don't blame that on the devil. As a matter of fact, no one here is talking about it being, quote unquote, the devil's fault. Maybe the devil was involved in part of it, but everyone here is saying they understood these things were going on internally in their mind, okay? And so when a Monique comes to Jesus, there's something miraculous that happens. Would medical science be able to do that? No. But are we against it? No. If at any point Monique would have came into our church and said, hey, I believe in Jesus, but I'm really still struggling with these panic attacks. We would have said to her exactly what we said yesterday from the pulpit, and that is, if anyone needs professional help, Metro Praise will pay the first visit for you to go to a professional. And if you just want to sit and talk to a pastor, somebody is ready now for free. All of our pastoral counseling is free, and we'll also pay for you to go to a professional that has the degrees and the ability to prescribe medication or to work with you. But notice that we have seen these miracles, and you'll hear them in other testimonies, enough to believe that God can do it. And we don't make them feel guilty. Did you ever feel at any point, Monique, just to kind of help people, because when they hear us talk about these things, did you ever feel guilty in the sense that we were judging you because of who you used to be or the thoughts that you had? Or rather, did you sense that the church, you were a part of our church, because I can't speak for other people's churches, but for our church, our heart was just for you to experience God's love and his new life. What did you feel as we were preaching to you? Absolutely. I, I believe that you guys from the beginning wanted me to experience God's love. And I never felt um, judged or criticized because of the struggles that I came with, uh, that I brought in when I first started coming. I knew right away that the leadership and everybody there wanted to help me. I, I knew I could see that right from the beginning, especially because, you know, all the months prior, um, my friend who brought me, Vanessa, was telling me that, you know, constantly like, you know, this church is different. This church really cares about people. It's not the Catholic church that you grew up in. It's not like that. People legitimately care and want to see you live free. And so I already had a very uh, high expectation that that was going to happen. I laid everything on the line by moving out so, just so I could go. And I was, uh, I was very like, um, my, my expectations were met. Like the second I came in, I felt like nobody is uh, being critical of my past or my, my current state. They just want to help. Amen. And so just to work through so people can understand, they may say, well, what does that look like as a Christian to be free from panic, free from suicidal fixation and so forth? Well, what it looked like for Monique was literally coming to Jesus with her heart, releasing, releasing pain, accepting forgiveness, and then on her own, over time, confessing her sins, the things she did that contributed to that spiraling pattern of depression. And so as Trent Reznor said, head like a hole, as deep as your soul, I'd rather die than give you control. That was one of my favorite artists. See, instead of her saying, I'd rather die than give you control, God, she was saying, I'll give you that control. Now, how would that look in her day-to-day -day life? Because our church gives a one-on-one -on -one mentor, one-on-one -on -one to every believer in our church. Anybody who wants to be a Christian gets that. Everybody can have pastoral counseling, whether they're a Christian or not. But every Christian is assigned. Everybody says, I want to be uh, a Christian is assigned a leader. She's now one, by the way. As a matter of fact, uh, out of the three people we're interviewing um, today, um, 
Two of them are deacons and one's in training for being a deacon and she's a Bible college student. So all of these are actually leaders too. So Monique, when you would meet with Vanessa in that mentoring and you would have a depressive thought or you would say, today wasn't a good day. I gave into some thoughts. Would Vanessa say, you are damnable. You are going to hell. This is entirely your fault. You better stop it now or I'm going to stop mentoring you. Or would she say to you something like this, Monique, God wants you to cooperate with the process, confess it when you have given in, and ask him for strength, and keep speaking the word, and whatever you do, don't blame others, don't get a pity patty party mentality, stay with it, and watch what God will do. Which one was it? Was it this extreme, you're going to hell, you're just a suicidal person again, God must not change you, we don't love you. Or was it, let's go through the process of transformation together. We're with you. We love you. How, how was it? I think you, we know where it's going. But just describe yeah. what it was like to be with Vanessa. Because as, as she's going to do this, guys, listen to me. This is what counseling really does. I have all the books on the main counselors right now for OCD, anxiety, uh, suicidal fixation. This is what they call mindfulness or cognitive brain therapy, CBT. Christians do this naturally, not trying to partake the place of a professional, but in true mentorship and discipleship, this is a natural process that we do, and that's why it's so effective. That's why Christian counseling is more effective than any other non-Christian clinic. Christian drug rehabs are more effective than AA and NA, etc. So was she judgmental or was she in the process with you giving grace so that you could see that this would truly be left behind? Sure. So Vanessa was like my informal mentor, but I went through the actual process with Pastor Griselda, but the same thing still applies. She would always tell me that, um, she'd always talk to me about taking my thoughts captive and using scripture to renew my mind and how God wanted me to be free. And he didn't want me to live like that. He didn't want, God didn't want me to live in that constant state of depression. And she never condemned me for it. She just encouraged me to grab a hold of scripture and and to, you know, speak those things out loud when I was going through something so that I wouldn't allow the devil to get a foothold. And so she would always remind me that, you know, as soon as the thoughts would start crossing my mind, if I just was passive about it, the devil would put his foot in the door and just bust it wide open and start, you know, wreaking havoc on my life again. And that always scared me. Like, not that I was afraid of the devil, but it always scared me to think that he could regain control if I allowed him to. And so that always encouraged me to be watchful of the thoughts that were coming into my mind. Wow. Think about that. You were practicing mindfulness. This is a, uh, a clinical term. People know it and can Google it. You were practicing techniques of anti-anxiety, combating anxiety. You were practicing what they call neuroplasticity, restructuring of the brain. This is what the experts in OCD teach is how to see yourself different than your brain, to see yourself different than the thoughts you're having. You are not your brain, in other words. In some counseling situations, just within the first meeting with a counselor and then them teaching, you're not your brain, there is significant difference. And here in the Bible, these same exact things are happening. You're not your flesh. Sin is something you don't have to give into. And so with that, you're also seeing the fear of the Lord, not a tormenting fear, but you had a genuine fear, which would be 
If I don't have God's grace, if I don't have God's word, I could go back into this direction. I could find myself back in this place. And by staying true to the path of God, yes, it's a path of life. You resisted the path of temptation, which is a path of death. And this is where we want to be very clear. People can be tempted by the devil to do these things, but the devil can't make people do these things. And so that's the difference. We're not saying that the devil made Monique depressed or suicidal, but that the devil was afflicting her and tempting her and trying to have her give in to what the Bible calls is the flesh. And the flesh is that which comes from the Adamic nature. It's what we're born with naturally. Now, why does the flesh and some of us desire suicide or not uh, to see the life of God naturally? That's, that's according to our own fallen nature. Why is it I dealt with anger? My mother had to rescue, uh, my mother had to rescue a little girl from me at five years old after I punched her in the face and gave her a bloody nose. How many five-year-olds do you know get angry and punch somebody? I didn't even know what I was doing at that time. So yes, I had a prevalence. I had a prevalence of, uh, of violence and all of those things, which, by the way, is a risk factor for suicide and anxiety and all that. And I'll tell my story in just a little bit. But I just want you to notice that everybody may have it differently. So don't start saying, I, I'm not like Monique or it's different than me, so I can't receive. The idea is, and this is also a part of support groups, is that you listen to other people's stories and you get encouraged by them and you start to see yourself in their story where it relates, okay? So it may not relate to all of what your story is, but you find yourself where it relates. And here's one of the leading experts on suicide. He said the three main reasons for why people commit suicide is perceived burdenness, failed belongingness, and then now they have the capability and they attempt it. And so you can see what happened was Jesus set Monique free from being perceived as a burden for her thinking to herself, my family never really wants me. Uh, I'm just a burden to people. The world doesn't want me. Jesus set her free from failed belongingness, being bullied, being overweight, feeling like she's always an outsider. That's what drew her to the Gothic music. But even inside the Gothic scene, when everybody's failing to belong, trying to belong, they still can't fill that void because no one has a true sense of belonging. And then she said she was even planning on doing it, but thank God she did it. God got, got in her life before that. Monique, anything else you want to say before we move on? Uh, I just want to reiterate that God is able. If he could do it for me, then he could definitely do it for anybody else. Because I thought that there was no hope for me. So that's pretty much all I want to say. <laughs> Amen. And right now you are a leader in our church. That means you're qualified to do one-on-one -on -one mentorship. You are not a professional counselor, but you can offer all the help you can. And then if professional counseling is needed, you know how to get in touch with our pastors to get them that free visit to start their track off right. How can they get a hold of you? Tell them the website again and maybe your Facebook page, your full name, so they can find you. Sure. You can go to my website, eatthegood.com, and you can find me on Facebook at Monique Pittman. Awesome. Thank you so much. Feel free to hang out. Next up. We have Desiree Merced. Desiree has such an amazing gift of leading worship and singing songs. You would see her if you came to our church or you watched a live feed because she would generally be on stage with her husband. And you would probably not guess the story 
that she has or where she has come from. Desiree grew up in a very harsh environment. She's going to tell us about that. That led her to a life of despair, bad choices, anger. And that gift that she had, she even got to use to make music in the music industry and do different things. And a lot of her testimony is relatable to so many young ladies today who are artistically gifted, who want to do something great in the world, but yet they are tormented on the inside for different reasons. And she's going to share with you her testimony. Desi, start by telling us how someone like yourself got to be tormented at such an early age. Start again. You were muted. Go ahead. I unmuted you. Now you're muted again. Let's do it. I'm going to unmute you. I'll do the unmuting. Okay, I'll do the unmuting. We're touching it at the same time, or there we go. Let's do it. You're open. Yes, start from the beginning, please. What I said was um, I was around five years old when um, I started to be sexually abused, and it was by, like, my next-door neighbors, um, people that my mom left us home with because my mom worked nights. my father left at a young age. Um, yeah, so he wasn't there. And uh, my mom was very um, abusive to me physically. And um, and I mean, like hitting you with stuff that was all around the house. And so I just started to just, I got in this little bubble and I did not want to tell anybody anything. I didn't want to speak to my mom because, um, I mean, there was times where I did try to go up to my mom and she pushed me away. And now that I'm older, I get it. You know, like um, she didn't receive love from her parents. So she didn't know how to love me. And, you know, that affected me greatly. So I did not open to my mom. I didn't open up to anyone at school. Um, I was very just to myself. Um, yeah. So starting off being abused by your mom, how did it then turn into sexual abuse? Because she was being neglectful, right? She wasn't there all the time. You couldn't really go to her. How did it then turn to sexual abuse? And what age? I was around five, five, six. So what happened was, wow. I remember this. Yeah. So everything was, it seemed like everything was happening at once. Um, I went literally next door. We lived in this apartment building and I went to the next door neighbor's house, which was a friend of mine from school. And her brother asked me if we wanted to play hide and seek. And I said, yes. And that's where everything just went downhill. So, yeah. So starting at early, I mean, you're talking a kindergartner. I mean, that's the age of my children, your children now. And by the way, Monique is married, has two beautiful children. Our families are blessed. They're going to never know the pain that we went through because of our bad decisions or what was done to us by other bad decisions. We're going to protect them. Mine, and when I get into my story, we'll say, we'll talk about it was all my bad decisions. Monique and you, you, it was what was being done to you. Wow, this is, and I think Jerry will relate to my story, her bad decisions bringing on the turmoil and torment, opening up to drugs, et cetera. But while at five years old, you're being abused, how old were you when you ran away from home to get away from your mom's abuse and neighborhood abuse and just all of this pain in your life? How old were you? Um, I believe 12 to 13 years old. So the way that went down was, um, I didn't do one of the chores that my mom had asked me to do. I told her to wait 
And she just went like berserk and um, she started to abuse me really bad that day. And then she asked me to leave the house. And I was like, where am I gonna go? Like, I don't know what to do. And she's like, I don't care, leave my house. So I left and I remember walking all the way to one of my friend's house and I just stayed there for a few days. So that's how that all started. Once I got the feeling of freedom away from my mom, I that's what I wanted. I did not want to go back to her at all. And I'm telling you, like I would sleep in abandoned buildings. I would chill at McDonald's just to drink some water and just have some shelter. I would go into department stores and steal clothing to have clothes and underwears, whatnot. Um, and then I would just find groups of people to hang out with. Um, and then just try to spend the night as much as I can over like friends' houses. But eventually, you know, their parents would tell you, you got to go. Wow. So when did the abuse of drugs and alcohol come in? And what, was that a part of what they would call self-medication? I mean, you're just a tormented soul and you're just trying to hide the pain? Um, you know, it was hanging around with these people. So um, I got introduced to someone who found out I can sing. And I, I believe at this point that I'm still around 13. Yeah, like 13 years old. And, you know, I'm just singing and this older man's like, hey, why don't you come to my studio, like in his house? So I go with this girl and we're there and they have like a bunch of lines on this table. And I'm like, what is that? And he's like, go ahead, take some. And so they offered me cocaine. And from there, like I got heavily addicted to cocaine at a young age. So 13 years old, you're snorting lines of cocaine, basically yeah. living on your own, don't have a family network to go back to. And thank God now your mom is saved and she's a deacon and a leader in our church. Everyone pray for Iris as she's battling, battling with cancer right now, getting the treatment. She is a warrior and we love her. Lord, be with her and strengthen her. I can even see she's watching us right now on the live feed. Iris, we love you. Desi does not hold your past against you. He knows it's covered in the blood, which is a whole nother discussion about how God restores things. So you're doing drugs. You've come from a bad lifestyle, uh, an abusive lifestyle, rather. How in the world does someone not have despair in this? I mean, it would just seem like the most natural thing, but... For you, it gets bad and it can't stop because there's no one to help you. If I was there as your youth pastor, I would have done everything I can. But how bad did it get? What was it like being you at that age? And what was the age that it was the worst? This was getting very bad rapidly. So I'm in the streets. I'm hanging with groups of girls that I found. Um, and they start to tell me that if I want to hang with them, I have to put out. And I was like, what is this? You know? They're like, basically, you have to sleep around to make money because you can't just hang out with us, you know, or sleep where we're sleeping. You have to be making money. And I was like, um, I don't want to do that. So I ended up um, still hanging around with them, but telling them I didn't want to do it. So they ended up setting me up um, and I ended up being raped very bad, like by multiple men. Um, yeah. So after that, um, the, the guy that raped me took me back to his house. And he had a wife there and he told his wife that we were, that I was just this poor runaway that he found in the streets and he really wants to help me. And she was okay with it. And so he told me to be quiet. Don't ever say a word. If I ever spoke, if I ever tried to leave the house, he would have me killed. He told me that I was not the first and I wasn't the last, that I need to shut up because everybody on that block knows who he is, knows what's going on. And I will die if I said anything or tried to escape. So I was in that house 
lasted what felt like almost two months and I would be crying. And like, as soon as his wife left, you know, he would do unspeakable things. And then as soon as she would come back, you know, he would act like everything was okay. And I was just way too scared to say anything. I wasn't sure if she knew what was going on or anything. I just kept my mouth shut. Um, eventually I started to get kind of smart about the situation. And I knew that, you know, because of the way he was acting when she was home, that she had no idea. So I told her one day when she got home that I was ready to go home. If, you know, she can please let me go. So she let me go. I went all the way back home. I went to my mom. I never said a word. I didn't speak at all. I did not tell anybody what was happening at all. I started to like try to sleep throughout the night and I would be tormented. And I mean, spiritually, like things were just picking at me. It almost felt like they were pinching my flesh saying, ha ha, look what happened to you. You're disgusting. You're such a loser. You know, no one's going to want you. You're tainted. You're dirty. And I started to just feel so disgusting and embarrassed and ashamed. And um, whenever someone would try to talk to me, it was almost as if this video would just come down and start playing and, um, and I would see myself being raped by this man over and over and over. And I started to believe that it was my fault. It was my fault. I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have been in the streets. Like it was all my fault. And I, I hated myself for it. I hated myself for the person I became. I, I, just, I did not want to live anymore. I was ready. And God knows I was so ready to end it all. And I was going to do it. Um, and then my mom, you know, she was going to church at the time. So she's like, you know, whether you like it or not, you're living in my house, you're coming with me to church. And I was just like, whatever, you know, I don't even care, I'll go. So um, I'm sitting in the church and I remember there was a prophet, Greg Riley there, and I'm 14 years old and I'm sitting in the back and, and he calls me out by name. And he's like, I just feel, you know, there's, there's this girl here, Desiree, if you can please come to the front. And I shook my head, no. And he called me again, come to the front. I shook my head, no. I finally end up going up and he said, mind you, I did not tell anybody. Nobody knew anything that had happened in my life. And he goes, God wants me to tell you in front of everyone here today that it wasn't your fault. So at that time, I'm just on my face, I'm crying. And he's like, it wasn't your fault. God said that after today, you are completely healed. Every suicidal thought you had is gone. Like the tormenting demons gone. You know, you are renewed, made fresh and Ever since then, I, like the suicide thoughts, gone, completely gone. Wow. Let's yeah. look at this real quick as I begin to help people understand. Once again, maybe not every part of her story is your story, but can you relate to parts of the story? The idea isn't to come here and say, well, it worked for her because it was like this for her, but it's not working for me because it's like this for me. That's already pride. Humble yourself in group therapy when they get together, you're not supposed to shut down somebody else's story and say, well, why is Desi here? You know, she didn't have bipolar like I did. Yeah, but you want to know what the risk factors are? This is Mayo Clinic. Let's count down how many of the risk factors Desi had in her life. She had not attempted suicide before, which is obviously a risk if you've already done it. So let's not even count that because you got to have the first things leading up to it, right? And some people, their first attempt is their only attempt. So let's go through these. Feeling hopeless or worthless, agitated, socially isolated or lonely. 
Yep, that pretty much happened when she got abused by her mom, raped by a neighbor, kidnapped and put into somebody's house, okay? Experience a stressful life event. Yep, that goes into the kidnapping and the raping, uh, being asked to snort coke while she was singing songs with people, being asked to be a prostitute, having a substance abuse problem. Yep, those things were happening. Having suicidal thoughts. Yep, she did. Thankfully, she didn't have access to firearms at that time, or at least she didn't grab them. Did she have an underlying psychiatric disorder? We don't know. She could never get checked. I bet you a 13-year-old doing drugs, having post-traumatic stress disorder from a child, I bet you she probably would have had some things come up on a brain scan. Let's go to the next one. Has a family history of mental disorders, substance abuse, suicide. Yep. Her mom's the one beating her out of her own mental anguish. We should hear Iris's testimony of what it was like in her own life. The medical condition, once again, we don't know. She's a runaway kid being kidnapped and raped. We don't know if she would have been diagnosed with something at that time. Did she have sexuality, transgender, uh, homosexuality feelings? Who knows? I can ask her right now. Did you ever have any of these feelings of lesbian, gay, or bisexual? Yes. Okay, so literally everything here that could possibly be known about Desi was in her life except for getting tested by a doctor. So once again, Mayo Clinic for children and teenagers, those who have a psychiatric disorder, we don't know. We couldn't have tested her then, right? Had a loss or conflict with family, yep. History of physical or sexual abuse, yep. Problems with alcohol or drugs, yep. Physical or medical issues like being pregnant or sexually transmitted infection, I know she got pregnant throughout some of her relationships, so that was there. Being a victim of bullying, yep. Being uncertain of sexual orientation, yep. Reading or hearing about suicide or somebody who died, yep. She knew that was in the world. My friends, don't let the devil tell you Jesus can't set you free. We're not saying everything is the devil. Desi actually shares a powerful testimony that says the devil did come and afflict her spiritually. That goes under mine, too. I had to have demons cast out of me when I was being afflicted mentally with anguish. Now, thank God she experienced the miracle of Jesus setting her free. Now, once again, Desi, when you came to church, you didn't have a cross test, uh, tattoo. You had other kinds of tattoos. Obviously, you've been having a lot of tattoos since you were young. Did anybody judge you when you told your story in some of, because not everything was rape. Obviously you had some relationships, you had children. Did anybody judge you for having children? When you came to our church and you started to get disciple, were people there to help you, to love you? And if you had a bad day or confess thoughts, were they there to support you? What was it like as you began to get mentored through the pastoral counseling, the discipleship counseling, being in church, were you loved? Were you accepted? Did people help you or did they just judge you and say, well, since you were suicidal and a drug addict, we're just going to condemn you to hell now. Which one was it like? 100% I was welcomed from the very beginning, from the moment that I walked into that church where everyone was just hugging on me and talking to me, asking me questions. Like I couldn't believe it. For me, it almost felt unbelievable because I was so sure that there was no love in the world, no love. I was so I was so certain that no one person could really love another person. When I entered Metro Praise, I felt overwhelmed. It was beautiful, it was amazing. Um, my 101 mentor, Lauren, she was amazing, so real, so down to earth. I couldn't even believe it. Like, And she was just like, you know, you have to be open. You have to be real with me, you have to be open. 
And I was just that real with her and open. And she helped me get through so many obstacles in my life. Definitely. Praise God. Now, those who are tracking, we know by research that over half of the people who commit suicide do not have any serious mental health issues. We believe in mental health issues and we believe in doctors are there to help. We don't know how mental health issues begin nor how they end. What we do know is what the symptoms of them are. And as Dr. Amen has done over 80,000 brain scans has shown that they can be healed and repaired. So what we are saying today is that Jesus can do in a moment what medical science can't do. But once again, if the miracle of my, of my eyes is not done, I still wear glasses and I love Jesus and he's still my healer and I love him. If Desi would not have experienced instantaneous transformation, if she wouldn't have started to have the chemicals of her brain begin to function properly, free from the drugs and the depressive fixations, we would have willingly sent her to a counselor. Our church, whenever we discuss this subject, offers free counseling to the professionals in our city and some of our professionals in the city are the best and they can prescribe medicine and they can do counseling. And we have some in our church that have done that. But what Desi is saying is she called on God and things happen supernaturally. My thing is, can you start fair, ask God like Desi did to believe God for supernatural and then begin to practice the way Desi practiced the things that Christians have been doing for 2000 years that line up exactly with today's best medical science, meaning the OCD expert, Dr. Jeffrey Swartz, wrote in his book, You Are Not Your Brain, that the first thing you have to do is tell yourself, I'm not my brain. I am not these thoughts. I will not receive them. I will begin to filter them. She began to filter them as a Christian. Then what we learned from the other books like D.A.R.E., Facing Anxiety, that you have to face these issues what we would call exposure therapy, not let your fears move you into more isolation, but to run and engage them safely, obviously, and to take them on. How do Christians do that? We go into life with the word of God, overcoming our fears. Before Desi goes, let me just tell you some of the things that she's had to overcome. Facing being on stage again and leading worship and praising and worshiping God because she doesn't want to be judged. She doesn't want to be held back from her past. Also, going to Bible college. She was a high school dropout. She was tormented from such a young age, but she took on the challenge to get her GED to now be in Bible college, to be a great mom, to not let her temper hold her back, and to have her treat her children the way she was treated. Desi, just hit on any or all of these things in your new life that you've done with the Lord, these are the new habits the world says we're supposed to adopt as new patterns of behavior, but the Bible taught you them, right? It's, it's good. The world, a psychiatrist or a psychologist will look at you and go, that's good, Desi. You're getting back out there and using your gifts. You're getting an education again. You're doing great things with your children. But how did you see all of that through the word of God and experiencing his power? Because that was a miracle too, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, just holding on to verses, scripture, reading the word, like um, using the word to combat like thoughts that I was dealing with or anything. One of the scriptures that I held on to so much during those times was uh, Psalms 147.3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I was, I used to really just hold on to that. Like, God, I know you're with me through all of this. Um, and just 
Lauren, like being open, being real, um, talking to you guys, like just letting everything out, um, just not being fake, not being phony. Um, I had to, you know, I had to overcome like being shy or timid, like being the, the one that didn't want to talk or anything like that. But um, definitely going to a church that is alive. And yeah, that's it right there. Hey, man, thank you for sharing that. And since, and I didn't get a chance to ask Monique this, but have you had thoughts of despair recently? And if you did, how did you handle them? You know, um, maybe about a year ago, um, but I went right back into the word of God. And I was like, exactly what you were saying earlier. Like, I'm not going to think like that. I'm not my thoughts. You know, I'm above and not beneath, you know, God's, you know, placed, I'm the daughter of a of a king, like I don't have to think those thoughts anymore. I know who I am. I'm strong, and you know I'm not. I'm not going to live in fear anymore. Amen. Amen. And it would have been okay if you would have confessed that, you know. Oh, and definitely, definitely. I, you know, I speak to Lauren. You know, I let you know the people know, like you know what I'm dealing with or whatever, and they together we go through everything. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Let me just hit on this. Just because we believe suicide is an indication that someone's going to hell because Jesus is not the Lord of their life. It's kind of the opposite. Like if Jesus is the Lord of your life, you're not going to kill yourself. If he's legitimately the Lord of your life, you're going to follow him no matter what suffering you're going through. You may have a thousand things going wrong, but the one thing you're going to have right is say, God, my life's in your hands, right? But if you ever would have confessed that, do you think someone would have said to you, you're going to hell just for confessing that? Or do you think they would have given you love and support and said, that's not the direction you have to go. And there's a choice for you. Definitely love and support. Cause that is all I've ever gotten from Metro Praise Church. Amen. And you haven't just been around Metro Praise Church for like two Sundays. How many years have you been with us now? I'm a little bit over five. A little bit over five years. Amen. And Monique's been with us almost 10 years. These are long lasting testimonies. Metro Praise has a very low rate of overturn. Many people stay with us, have been with us for five, 10 years plus. Jerry's another one coming on. People may come and go. We may have 10 to 20% come and go just like, you know, looking for a different church or don't really like what we're doing. That's fine. But over 70, close to 80% of our church is in discipleship. And like Desi, they have been with us for years, and some of them through tough life situations, like Iris going through cancer or the different things that people are facing. They've seen a church love them and be with them, even though, right, we still believe in sin. We believe you think it's okay to murder your child. You're going to go to hell for that. We, you think it's okay to live in a gay and lesbian. These are the hot topics, right? You think it's okay to live in a gay and lesbian lifestyle. You're going to go to hell for that. You think it's okay to take your life and you do it. You're going to go to hell. We may talk about hell a lot, but it's not because we don't like it. Jesus talked more about hell. Uh, not that because we want people to go there. Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven because he doesn't want you to go there. If I saw a train coming to hit you right now, how much would I want to talk to you about me liking your songs as opposed to the train coming to hit you right now? Hey, Des, I really like the song that you wrote the other day. You're so awesome. You're such a great singer. Is that how I started off? No, I'm going to say, hey, there's a train coming. You need to get off that train, right? So anything else, uh, Desi? I know I keep talking, but I want you to have the last word before we move on. I just want to share with everyone that if you're going through something, speak up. You don't have to go through it alone. Speak up, say something to someone, and before anything, I dare you to just seek God because he can do it. He can do it in an instant, you know, like dare you to come before the Lord in prayer and just lay it all at his feet. 
Amen. Thank you so much, Desi. Well, I'm going to introduce now one of our pastors, Jerry Vivit. She is going to come on and talk about anxiety because anxiety can be very tormenting and lead to other things. Do you know that people commit suicide without any other issue other than just anxiety? And do you know that some of the symptoms of anxiety lead people to drug abuse? So it's a vicious cycle of being anxious and then trying to get away from it by doing drugs. That was part of my story. So Jerry and I's stories are going to be very similar. Jerry was brought up a Christian, but then she turned to drugs and alcohol. Anxiety developed. It was terrible. She had it many times a day. And she's going to now tell you what Jesus did in her heart. Go ahead, Jerry. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So I was raised in a Christian home. My parents loved Jesus their whole life. Um, you know, they taught me the right things, the things I should do, um, how to live righteously. And I did serve God for a good portion of my life. And I mean, as a child, and, and uh, it was interesting because as I was sitting here listening, um, I was thinking about, I had anxiety as a child because I thought I was going to die in my sleep every night. And I think it all started there and my mother would pray for me. And then when I became, when I got into high school around 16, um, I would have upwards to anywhere between three to five anxiety attacks a day. And, um, and, uh, okay, sorry, I have a little guy here. <laughs> um, and so I struggled by myself. And if I showed you pictures from high school, you'd say, you look happy. You look like everybody knew me. I went to a small high school. Um, she was fine, but inside I was conflicted. I didn't know what, I was, I was constantly confused and then basically battling alone. You know, I journaled and that's how I dealt with it. Um, even though I went to church, I didn't really talk to anybody about it, but I tried to get involved in things. And then as the pictures that you probably saw, I really turned to partying and that's kind of how I started dealing with it. I had different friends later in high school, none of which were Christians. And so instead of dealing with my issues, I just started getting into smoking pot, smoked a lot of pot, and then it would cause more anxiety in the end. And then I started making bad choices. And I know this is something that Joe preached on this past Sunday, but some of our inner conflict just comes from the choices that we've made and kind of a regret and guilt and shame. And so I started feeling that then I turn away from God, I move away, I move like the prodigal daughter all the way to San Francisco, make more bad choices, get into more wrong relationships, got into more like a promiscuous lifestyle, as well as doing drugs and partying and doing keg stands, as you saw, and just trying to fill my life with these things. And my anxiety was out of control because I was so guilt laden from all these things. So you fast forward, I moved back home to Arizona to be with my family because I legitimately felt like I didn't know who I was anymore. I changed my name. I changed my identity so I could be whoever I wanted because I didn't even ascribe even, I would tell people I used to be a Christian because I knew what a Christian life should be like. And <laughs> I know, sorry. Um, and so 
I came back and I struggled, struggled, struggled with all of these anxieties and finally kind of almost like a kitchen table. My mom had been going to counseling and I said, you know, maybe I need some counseling too. And so she paid for me to go to a counselor. She wasn't a Christian counselor, but she helped me work through some of the guilt things. And I had started going back to church, but I still hadn't quite figured out that it was just guilt and shame that was keeping these anxiety, anxious thoughts. And I even had panic attacks to the point where I thought I was going to die. Um, Let me give you a minute to handle what's going on. He's okay. He's just hanging out. Jerry's making time today. I don't know if Tony or husband is there. We'll check back in with her in just a moment. But uh, one of the things that I want you to notice that what Jerry is saying is that anxiety can come from a lot of different reasons and a lot of different sources. Anxiety is actually the number one mental health issue that people struggle with in the country. But you know, it's also the highest cure rate. Yes, that's right. I said cure rate. The leading doctors and clinicians right now helping those with anxiety disorders are giving them the most hope that has ever been given to any mental health issue. Here's one of the books that I recommend for those who struggle with anxiety. It's called DARE, and it has to do with the DARE response, D-A-R-E, standing for DARE. And what he teaches in the DARE response is that when the anxiety comes, you, number one, you diffuse it. You remember at the moment of the anxiety that you are different than your brain, and anxiety is nothing more than adrenaline. It's nothing more than the fight or flight response from your adrenal gland, your ambigula, working together to overfire these things. And sometimes they can be a part of other health issues you're facing, and you have to realize it's okay. This fear is not going to kill me. The fear will not kill me. Now, once you diffuse it, you allow it to pass through you. It would be just as if I said to you, stop thinking about a red ball. The more I tell you stop thinking about a red ball, the more you're going to keep thinking about the red ball. But if I tell you, let the red ball thought come and stay as long as it likes, the moment you do that, you've taken the power away from you trying to suppress it to allowing it to pass through. Now, as Christians, this doesn't mean we allow the fearful thoughts to remain. We took care of that as Christians in Romans 12 at the diffuse. We say, I'm going to cast down this thought. But what we allow is the actual movement of adrenaline through our body. And he even talks about if you shake a little bit, if your nerves feel like they're on edge, let it flow through. Anxiety normally has a peak and then it has a coming down. As it's peaking, the more you fight it, the more it stays. And then so what he says, as it's peaking, run towards it now and say, come on, anxiety, do your best. Last time you made me shake for five minutes, see if you can make me shake for 10 minutes. Last time you made me think that I had to run out the room, let's see what you can do this time. And the moment you start running at it and you start saying, that I'm not going to let you have control. The fear begins to subside. You want to know why? Because it's the same idea of going on a roller coaster. When you're coming to that roller coaster, I'm so scared. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? 
All of that increases the fear, increases the fear. But when you're on the roller coaster and you say, bring it on, make me fear for my life. I want to be more scared than I've ever been. Literally, listen, this is what the science shows us. This is what we know. When you are running towards it, you're literally becoming the observer and you're in control and you can start to see that it's not going to hurt you. And then lastly, here at the end, with dealing with anxiety is you engage it. You now look at what was the very thing that might've caused it at the beginning? What was that trigger that made this such a big deal? Was it something that has to do with my environment? Was I told a stressful thing? Was I you know, told on my job a stressful thing about a job assignment I was gonna to have to do? Was was, uh, was I given bad news? What was that thing? Now I engage it and I continue to think about that thing unlike I did before, but in a new lens because now I'm not afraid to face it. I'm going to put the scripture on it. So let's say uh, my boss told me I don't have uh, a job anymore and that he's going to lay me off in two weeks. The anxiety comes. I say, you know what? This is, I diffuse it. This is just anxiety. It's going to run its course. I start to feel my heart rate go up, the sweaty palms, et cetera. I now allow it, and then I run towards it. Do your best anxiety. Make my body shake, do whatever. But I'm going to be here five minutes later going on with my life anyway. And then when the anxiety subsides, okay, now let me see how I'm going to get a job. You say, Pastor, that sounds too easy. My friends, that's exactly what the scientists are telling us. He quotes the scientists in this book and starts to help you with the waves of anxiety. And now, does the wave of anxiety resemble panic attacks? Yes, they're a little bit different according to the mental health uh, uh, world, but it resembles it. You can use those same things. My personal testimony. Hey, sorry, guys. Um, looks like Joe got kicked off, but he should be back on in just a minute. So just hang out with us. Um, I'll just tell you that um, as, sorry, guys. Um, as Joe, Joe was kind of going on about his anxiety, um, there is hope for every person who deals with anxiety. And if you struggle with anxiety, just know that God got us through and he's going to get you through. And I really feel like as being somebody who suffered through years of anxiety, even going through 
divorce that led to incredible amounts of stress um, to where I had to go to doctors and that sort of thing. Um, God really got me through. In the end, I came to Metro. I found Metro. Um, I was in a place of still making bad choices and got... Um, I got free. I, I found a flyer for the church on the ground and I was in a place where the relationships that I had didn't matter and I felt lost and isolated. And it really just came to a point where I was at my wit's end in the sense of I didn't know what else to do with my life. And I came to the, to the church. I had people pray over me. Um, even in a moment where I met with my 101-er and she prayed for me and basically this oppressive spirit of fear and anxiety had to be released out of me because I had just struggled and felt this oppressive, this oppression of fear that was almost debilitating at times. So I masked it with a a happy-go-lucky attitude, which only happens for so long. And Joe's back. <laughs> Amen. No, I thank you. You did wonderful. Yeah, I don't know why it went out. I was just finishing up saying that what the Bible talks about 2,000 years ago, especially the New Testament, about renewing the mind, even the Psalms, you know, going back 4,000 years ago, have the same exact principles of what modern science is finding today, even in anxiety. The more they pump you with drugs, that doesn't mean the more free you are. As a matter of fact, almost every expert now dealing with anxiety, they are very, um, they, they do, they're very careful on how they give drugs now with anxiety because there's so many, so many new journals out that cognitive therapy and exposure therapy done right really helps and that having people sedated on drugs takes away the activity of the brain while they're going through exposure therapy. So they only use it in anxiety in rare cases where it's totally disabilitating and they try to rein in the person so that they can then have these experiences that retrain the brain. That's literally the terminology that they use, retrain the brain, neuroplasticity, rewiring the brain, uh, exposure therapy, showing that you can be safe in environments you once were afraid of, inducing uh, those same kind of fears in mock, uh, in mock counseling sessions or, or uh, mock role play to help you understand you can hear these things, you can see these images and still be okay. The Bible said that a long time ago, friends. So any questions today, thank you for joining us. A little bit over an hour. You've heard from three powerful testimonies, two dealing with depression and suicide, Jerry's and mine dealing with anxiety. We are not skeptical of the medical world. We are not against those getting help with mental issues. We offer help to everyone, but remember, we always put God first in all that we do, and I believe that any good doctor will say the same. Any questions that you guys have, I'm trying to look here at the feed. Uh, because of this, I can only see like the top five. If you have a question, repost it right now live so I can see it. Otherwise, I'm going to have Jerry pray for us. Thank you for joining us. It's been an awesome Labor Day podcast here. Any other questions coming up? Jerry, would you close us out in prayer, please? Yes, Lord Jesus, we come before you, God. We are so thankful for your word, God, for your life that walked on this earth to 
to show us that we aren't alone and that we weren't left here to just deal with our problems by ourselves, but there's one who understands us better than anyone, who understands our struggles and our suffering, who cries with us when we cry, God, who, who rejoices with us when we rejoice, Lord, and I pray that you would bring freedom for the captives, for everyone who's dealing with depression and struggling with suicide or anxious thoughts, God, that you would give them victory over their mind, that you would show them how to take every thought captive and make it obedient to you, God, because you think the best thoughts of them and you want them to think the best thoughts of themselves, Lord, but you want them to put their mind on Christ. You want them to think about you and your glory and your kingdom to come, God. So I pray for each person who's listening right now or who will be listening to this later, that they will turn to you, God, that you would set them free in the name of Jesus, that they will understand that there is no power on, on earth or in hell that can defeat them, God, because no weapon formed against them shall prosper when they carry the sword of the spirit. So, Lord, I pray for victory over every person, God, because when we are in you, we fight from victory, not for it. And we love you, Jesus. We give you all the victory, all the glory, all the honor in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. And shout out to all those who stood up yesterday, over 40. Many of them I've invited. I invited today. They couldn't make it. I want to tell you, we have even more testimonies than this. We have a young lady who uh, actually attempted, was, was brought into the hospital uh, for suicide the next day or a couple of weeks later, I believe, after she was released. She gave her heart to Jesus. She has never been the same. Now she's happily married. By the way, Jerry's happily married with a child. There have been testimonies and testimonies in our church of this. Do not relegate these testimonies that it worked for them, but it will not work for you. Be encouraged by these testimonies. Hold on to them. And even if you've tried to go to church or to pray, so forth and so on, don't give up. As I tell people, take your Holy Ghost medicine. There are some things that leave us at once. There are other things that stay around for a while. But no matter what, when you take the Holy Ghost medicine, you're building up faith because you're speaking the word over your life. You're saying about yourself and your situation what God is saying. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. You can make it through this situation. And as you do that, you're going to see victory come. It's not faking it till you make it. It's just having hope. The Bible says never underestimate the power of hope or the power of faith or the power of love. Those things, faith, hope, and love are the greatest forces on earth. And as we as a church, and I may get to preaching again here. I know it's not Sunday, but it's Monday. I got a little left. As you hear the word being preached about sin and hell, don't let that be your pity patty party. Take those words and make them a part of your worldview. Believe what the Bible says. Believe that certain things are sins and that you must renounce them. If I was to have here a testimony time of those who have come from the bisexual or gay or lesbian background, they would say the same thing. Some of them are happily married right now, living for Jesus. And they have given their testimonies about God has given them power over that. So friends, don't, and even abortion, as I talk about those three hot issues, we've had people confess the sin of abortion and now they're free from it. And they have many wonderful children. And so I'll be putting up another post from one of the ones who couldn't make it today underneath this post, her testimony video about being free from depression. If you need us, if you want to get a hold of us, Jerry, uh, real quick, tell them how they can get a hold of you. You're a pastor. You, do the, you can do the counseling. You also 
can help recommend them to the professionals. You do that with, with our help. Uh, let them know how to get a hold of you to do a discipleship, just to reach out and pray. Let them know they're not going to suffer alone. And if they're a male, how they can get a hold of your husband. Yes. So you can find me on Facebook. It's Jerry, J-E-R-I, Vivit, V-I-V-I-T. Um, you can message me on Messenger. You can call me on my cell phone. You know, just send me a message. And I'll send that to you. My husband is Tony, T-O-N-Y, at Vivit also. And you can reach out to him. We are more than happy to take your phone calls, to answer your messages. Um, we just, we love God. We love people. So I just, we just want all of you to know that. Amen. Thank you, Jerry, for all your time today. Have a great day. You too. Thank you guys for all of your good feedback. Erica, Angel, Elaine. The rest of you who I can't see right now, thank you so much for making this an awesome live cast. God bless.